Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audiobooks whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. That's www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Hello, uh, audience. This is Leslie Gist. You're listening to The Gist of Freedom. We have Dan Duster on the line. Dan, would you please introduce yourself to the audience? And welcome again to the Gist of Freedom. Sure. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me, Leslie. Uh, again, my name is Dan Duster. I'm one of the uh, descendants of, of Ida B. Wells. She is my great-grandmother, actually. She's my, my father's mother's mother. So that's my lineage to it. I'm calling in from Chicago, Illinois. Okay, great. Um, now, before we talk about her legacy, let's talk about how you discovered grand, your great-grandma and her role in history, when was the first time you realized as a little kid that, wow, Grandma was somebody important? How did that come about? Well, let's see. My family was actually more humble about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, it was more of my, I guess, my, the first that I recall are, are what teachers would um, talk about my lineage to me um, and how important it was. I mean, so I knew I was the, grand, the great-grandson of Ida B. Wells, but it wasn't, I guess, hyped up, for lack of a better word, in the home. But uh, mm-hmm. teachers would, would uh, talk about it, and that's how I discovered it was more special. So the intent of uh, my father was to keep us humble, and we are who we are. It's not um, the fact that we're descendants of Buddy B. Wells is great, but uh, our, us being ourselves is, is more important. So that's, that's how I discovered it was really more so through other people rather than family members. And as we got older, we talked about it more in depth and, um, you know, a, a number of my family members um, still, still talk and promote Ida B. Wells. My sister actually just has, has written a few books, um, got a few cousins doing some things as well. So Wonderful. Could tell us a little bit about you, the books and the author, the family member, you know, so we can support your whole family. Sure. Um, so my sister's written three books. Two of them are taking some of Ida's writings and then pr- providing some context around them um, as essays. So the, the first one is um, centered around um, the World Fair in 1893 when um, it was in Chicago. And I, at that time, Ida was um, about to live in Chicago, but she, she had a lot to do with the um, protest of the World's Fair um, because th- there were, <laughs> as you still see sometimes there, there, there were no African-Americans um, that were involved in the World's Fair. You had some uh, people from the Caribbean, but there were no African Americans at the World's Fair. So she was at odds with uh, Frederick Douglass and whether to boycott or not. So her first book is centered around that. And then the other one is centered around um, Ida traveled to Europe, specifically to England and Scotland, to um, help launch boycotts of the U.S. for the atrocities that were going on with lynching. And so her second book is about that. And my sister's name is Michelle Duster. So if you Google that, um, you'll be able to find it. And the third book is called Kate and His Historic Dream. And it's uh, technically geared for children, but it's got a wealth of information that a um, number of adults. And she just released that about a month and a half ago. Um, so a number of adults have been very complimentary and um pleasantly surprised by how informative it, it, it is to not only children but adults. So it's uh, written at the fourth grade level, um, but it's uh, she's been having extreme success with it in school systems and with some social organizations. So that's called Tate and His Historic Dream. 
All right. Now, Ida B. Wells, she also wrote a book, at least I know of one book. Could you tell us a little bit about the, her book? Sure. Well, Ida, Ida was a journalist, so um, she, again, wrote uh, tons of articles for, for different newspapers, originally the Memphis Free Speech, uh, which she she owned. And um, so I guess a little bit about that is she wrote articles. Um, but again, lynching, unfortunately, was, was prevalent back then. Um, mm-hmm. So she wrote some articles, and it was kind of America's first investigative journalist. With lynching, you had... Um, you know, accusations of black men uh, harming or raping white women, and then they they'd be lynched. And there was there was little that was asked about it. If they said that it happened, they, the the public tend to believe that it happened. Um, so happens that in 1892, three of Ida's closest close friends in Memphis, Tennessee, were lynched, and and they were store owners. They were not accused of, of rape, but um, it is home. I mean, Ida was um, their names are Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and Will Stewart. And Ida was so close to Thomas Moss, she was actually godmother to his child. And the uh, men, uh, the one-minute synopsis is the men got into a confrontation with a, a racist white store owner, and the three men ended up being lynched in a place called The Curve in Memphis, Tennessee. And I, I've actually been down there, and it, it's still, there, there, there's nothing built on it, and it still has an eerie feeling to it. Um, mm. But the men literally begged for their lives. And you know, Thomas Moss had had a child and was married and had another child on the way and begged for his life, and uh, that that did nothing. Um, Will Will Stewart actually had his fingers um, blown off from a rifle. The men were beaten, tortured, and and and, um, and lynched and killed. So Ida, knowing the men, was like, you know, no, this because they, they were accused of you know conspiracy to. Um, kill a white person and so during a confrontation in the store a lot of white people um, at night came in to um, ransack the store the men were armed and ended up getting into a physical confrontation and shooting one of the one of the white men so the the men were the the three black men along with a lot of other black men in the town were rounded up and jailed and then um, on the third day that they were released and that's when the lynching happened. So Ida, knowing that these were upstanding men, was like, no, they, they wouldn't start anything like that. So she did her, her own investigation of that and found out that a lot of the uh, the prominent people in the town were part of the lynching. And so that that's what started her passion for justice and her passion against lynching. So she, she wrote about that um, as a journalist um, and then eventually wrote uh, a book called The Red Record, which is uh, one of the more prominent books known about lynching. So she investigated over 200 lynchings in the South and <clears throat> found that a majority of them, because, uh, again, in the, in the white media, in the media at that time was the newspaper, um, would again say that there were accusations of rape or conspiracy to harm white people, that sort of thing. And I did, um, did her own investigation, literally, you know, asked uh, family members and even victims or, you know, supposed victims about what happened and mm-hmm. come to find out that majority of the lynchings were false accusations. And not only that, for um, for the rape of white women, oftentimes there was no sex. Um, in a few instances, there was actually consensual sex. And she actually published this information. So the, uh, the media was not, or the especially racist white people were not happy to hear that, that, um, that, that she'd done the investigation and um, gave the accountability to the white people versus saying that this is the black people had done some type of injustice. So that's yeah. the, the book she's most, she's most noted for. Wow. That's incredible. She was extremely courageous. Um, now, after, did she go back home and perform these investigations and publish these yeah, findings, so or did she? Uh-huh. Yeah, at that time, home was Memphis, Tennessee. And what she and she's originally born in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is about uh, 30 miles south of of Memphis. But she was a school teacher, so originally a school teacher in Memphis, um, and actually um, got forced into journalism because she spoke out against the school system as a school teacher. So, 1889, she spoke out against the school system, saying, <laughs> which. May sound familiar, but she said that the uh, 
um, disparity in schools, again, with the segregated schools, that the black schools did not have the resources, um, you know, between books and funding that their white counterpart schools did, and it was a travesty. And the school board, right, so the school board reading that and said, well, you know, if that's the way you feel, you can't be a teacher. So there went her teaching income. So as a result, she um, had had done some some freelance writing for free and um, talked to the owner of the Memphis Free Speech and was able to secure not only a job, but eventually the ownership of that paper. Wow, that's so, so yeah, investigations. No. Mm-hmm. She so back to the uh, part of the investigations is that was in Memphis, and she was in Memphis until uh, really about 1894, where at that point she that's when she moved to Chicago, and that um, she had met her 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 husband to be Ferdinand Barnett in 1893, um, working with the World's Fair or working to wake up the world's the World's Fair. This newspaper that she owned. Do you guys own anything, any of the artifacts? Do you have any of those newspapers um, in your family? Right. So we don't personally. The uh, My father and his generation decided, or uh, between my father and his generation and then his mother, decided that um, it made the most sense for instead of the family holding under anything that was uh, had information or was relevant to Ida B. Wells, that if if there if, if the public would have an interest in it, it makes the most sense for the public to have access to it. So uh, the, they are in permanent loan with the University of Chicago Regenstein Library. So um, the public can have access to it. You can call or um, go to their website, and whatever information that's available on Ida B. Wells that they have, you can access for free. Wonderful. That's excellent news. Now, she traveled abroad. You know, when we think about, freedom fighters, revolutionaries, traveling board. Um, who comes to mind is Malcolm X. He went abroad and he fought, uh, you know, for our rights and um, went to the U.N. Ida B. Wells did something similar, didn't she? Yes, yes. So um, she was re- truly ahead of her time. Again, it's, it's, um, it's inspiring to hear everything that she's done. So what she did was early boycotts, um, which boycotts really hadn't been done to, to that point. So seeing, so again, with the context, the context of lynching is, you know, people often think of it as people, you know, just being hung, but it was far more atrocious than that. Ironically, Leslie, what would happen is people, you know, just during and after the lynching would take pictures. You know, if you can mm-hmm. imagine a sporting picture, you know, you know, a person who just shot a bear, or, or you know, one of a, a large marlin, and they're standing there marveling at their catch. Mm-hmm. With lynching, people would do the same thing. And so she took these photographs and her stories and, and articles, and went to again England and Scotland to um, encourage boycotts. And again, at the time, the U.S. was the largest producer of cotton, and those were those countries were, were the largest consumers. And so. You know, the, the irony of the U.S. is that, you know, free, freedom and justice for all. Um, and she said, no, it's not justice for all. Here, here's what's happening to, to the, the, the Negro in the U.S. And what Jewish countries need to do is boycott them because it's, it's absolutely not right that this is happening to a human being at this point in our time. So in order to um, – and, and she knew it would in, in embarrass the U.S., and it did um, – it did have an effect. So she actually traveled to Europe uh, twice and uh, on her, you know, raising her own funds. So this was not something that um, was part of her salary. <laughs> so she had to raise her own funds and uh, through the, through, through saving her own money and the uh, benefactors, whoever would contribute to help her do it. That's how she was able to travel there. So um, those things were effective. And actually what she learned, again, with most black people who went to Europe experiences, a total different experience than what black people in the U.S. were experiencing. So she learned a lot through her uh, travels in Europe um, and, and brought the, those those learnings back to the U.S., some of those being how to start suffrage uh, movements. So she was um, very instrumental in the women's suffrage movement and um, stood alongside or worked with Susan B. Anthony for the women's suffrage movement. So, All right, yeah. and... and- 
on our Facebook page, we posted um, a quote from one of her articles or essays, and she says, in 1893, excluding Sundays, a colored man was lynched every day from January to December. Now, those are some horrific stats. They are. That's that's um, pretty. I mean, so that's pretty accurate. Uh, my understanding is that, in, particularly in 1893, I think there were about 240 lynchings, and that's um, that's official lynchings. So if you do the math on it, mm-hmm. that's pretty much five five out of seven days a week. Uh, um, statistically, a black man is being lynched, and so um, that's really when during the height the height of her campaign. And within a couple of years, again, largely due to Ida B. Wells, the numbers were able to be dropped from, you know, the mid-200s down to um, the, low te- the low teens. So that's her, her efforts there produced some phenomenal results. Now, you know, we brought you on because of the reporting. It seems like there's a lot of reports going on um, about, chokeholds, and before I talk about it and get so emotional, I'll let you tell the audience, you know, uh, about these different reports that's going on in the news right now as far as chokeholds. Tell us what you know about it. Uh, well, so, yeah, chokehold, my understanding of it, and again, I'm not a, not a policeman, um, a chokehold is, is um, which you'll see, you know, typically in, you know, your MMA wrestling when you uh, have your arm around another person's neck and are, are able to physically choke them until they um, either lose consciousness and or lose their life. And so it is illegal, and there's an illegal pro, uh, procedure for any policeman to do that. Um, and as you know, that just the, the recent incident where the man was killed there in the Northeast, I, remember, I, I thought it was New York. Somebody else said it may have been Jersey, but I thought it was New York. It is New um, York. Yeah, so there were several police officers who... Um, were had a confrontation with a, a, a physically a large black man. I don't know how big he was, but uh, on fr- from the, the video that I saw, I say he was probably six four, probably two seventy to three hundred pounds. So he, he was a large man, um, mm-hmm. and there were several policemen, probably about four or five. And mm-hmm. what they did was. Um, one, because you know, they, they they told him that he was under arrest. He did not fight them, but he did not comply in turning around and, and allowing them to put the handcuffs on him. So because he did not comply, um, one man hopped on his back and got him in pretty much the, the choke the chokehold position. Um, and several others, uh, you know, were able to get him to the ground and then eventually had him on the ground with his face pressed against the ground and um, cutting off his air. As a result, he died. Now, I don't know if they've released – so that, that's what you see in the video. Um, just mm-hmm. staying with that story for a moment is the – a couple, a few things happened there. One, so he died. They've not released the um, – or at least as of when I checked – what's today, Sunday, as of when I checked Friday, I don't believe they've released the autopsy to save his cause of death. They're saying that he, he didn't die from being strangled. He, he had a heart attack. Um, still being the case is if that situation hadn't happened, he'd still be alive. And the other travesty yeah. behind that is after he died, nobody offered any type of CPR to try and revive him. Uh, the police are trained in CPR, and if somebody dies, they're supposed to do something. And then when the paramedics arrived on the scene, uh, my understanding is that nobody offered uh, CPR. So just a, a, a horrible combination of events to have somebody lose their life. And supposedly it was over um, him selling cigarettes um, without mm-hmm. – so, so, so selling cigarettes illegally, you're not supposed to sell them single. You're supposed to have this, you know, because they're supposed to be state taxed. So he's selling cigarettes illegally. So that whole combination is, is just – it's horrible. And what frustrates me is, and again, this goes back to the, the mob, what happens with the mob mentality and what I think contributes to, what contributed to lynching is you don't have anybody step up. Even if one guy was wrong for the chokehold, so you have one person that officially did the chokehold, but you got four or five cops there that are using excessive force to subdue somebody. 
and it just wasn't. It was absolutely not necessary. And that, uh, that's what frustrates me. Is not one of them stepped up to say, "Hey, look, this this we're, this is too much." And I think right. that that's you know that's what's that's what's tough. You know, is I, I, I have a lot of people, a lot of friends who are policemen, and mm-hmm. you know, they wouldn't do that. So that's frustrating to because there there's uh, there's absolutely more poli- good policemen than bad. Um, but when you see something like that, you can understand why people get frustrated with, angry at, uh, you know, police in general. Right. And this is not a, a really good time. Um, there's a lot of racial issues uh, building up right now. We still have the Zimmerman and Trayvon case that's still open mm-hmm. in Florida. We recently had a report out of Florida that the policemen in one particular precinct um, are part of the KKK. So, you know, you have a series of people being killed under the stand your ground um, law. So, you know, there's a lot of tensions and uh, racism. It feels like it's building up um, from last year, from Trayvon to now, and I don't think uh, people are feeling that there's any relief in sight. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is taking on a whole a uh, new feeling and vibe within the community. And um, that's why we have you on, because we want to try to bring some hope and encourage our listeners that if we can defeat um, the lynchings and this one little lady, and how tall was she about? Oh, yeah, I was barely right at five feet. Right. I thought she was very small. For her, you know, to come... Uh, to the scene and to help out her people is a testament that that if she can do it, then we certainly can do it in these times. You know, we have politicians, we have um, knowledge, we have education, we have access. So I don't want our listeners to be disheartened. Um, and, I'm, in fact, I'm very proud of how many people courageously took out their cell phones and videotaped what happened to Mr. Garner um, as he was being um, arrested. And what we didn't see, we didn't see any handcuffs. You know, normally if someone's being arrested, the handcuffs are out or maybe they have some kind of procedure. But it was disheartening to see um, what happened to him. But at, at the same time, it was uh, awesome to see so many videos from different angles and people, you know, weren't afraid to, to take their cameras out, their phones out, and to videotape, one lady was actually um, given a, an account of what was going on the entire time while she was filming. So I think that they, their actions are making a big difference in him getting uh, justice. Um, they're little Ida B. Wells, you know, of their day for what they did. Because if they didn't have the video cameras out, we would never know the truth. What do you say about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, video cameras have, have um, unfortunately, uh, you know, really revolutionized the whole um, judicial process. In that, you know, before was, you know, the the, the, <clears throat> the perpetrators word against the the arresting officer, and mm-hmm. the arresting officers are going to win, you know, nineteen times out of twenty. And that, you know, you say, hey, I was threatened. He did this, or he swung at me. And that's what's going to happen. There's another case, and I, unfortunately I can't recall the young man's name, mm-hmm. um, but he, it's on video, and it's on the police video, where he was stopped um, and compliant, had his hands up, and he was uh, 16, 17 years old. And this is in the past, um, the, the case is still going on. Um, but he was completely compliant. And, uh, two white officers were on the scene initially, and they said, stop resisting arrest. Stop. And you could see his hands were up. So he, he didn't step out of the car, but they said, stop resisting arrest. And then another police car from a different angle pulled up, and his his um, camera's on as well. And you can see the youth is still, you know, being compliant as far as his hands are up. He's not trying to do anything else. Um, but they, they rush him, break the window, punch him, and he's like, hey, stop trying to grab my gun. And you could see the youth was not trying to do anything that was aggressive. Um, and the only reason that he um, is not going to jail is that that videotape was released. 
Because um, otherwise, they, they would have said, hey, here's what he did, and he'd, be, he'd literally be in jail right now. Right. And Ida B. Wells, she didn't have Facebook or Twitter or the social media that we have, but she she really created her own her own platform by uh, using her newspaper and traveling abroad. I just think that was so dynamic. And like you said, before her time, she was just, uh, uh, she was just dogmatic at make, making sure that this message got across to the right people. And um, I can't imagine what she would do if she did have um, access to to the technology we have today. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, what she did uh, extremely well with her, with journalism was being able to take, because at the time the Native American was under. Uh, persecution as well And so what she would do is What white people said about The Native Americans Which called Indians at the time Is how they were savages And would do this and this And you know uh, So many bad or gruesome things And so she took those words And said okay now if you're saying this Is a gruesome act And a horrific act That a person is doing And that's what the white people were saying to the Indians Then how do you explain what's happening to the black man, what the white man is doing to to the black man. And so mm-hmm. by her being able to uh, use her platform and, again, you, you use the pen as a sword in the, in the battle against lynching and, and for civil rights, it's absolutely phenomenal. Right. Right. Well, I have a speech, read one of her speeches, which is read by the late Ruby Dee, and, in fact, um, we had Ruby Dee's grandson on, Muta Ali Muhammad. Uh, he just produced a film um, about his grandmother and his grandfather, Ruby Dee and Ozzy Davis. And um, I want you to take a listen to the speech read by Miss Ruby Dee. It's a speech that was given by Ida B. Wells. And if you'd be so kind to listen, and then we'll come back and ask you a few more questions. Is that all right with you? That's perfect. Thanks. All right. Here we go. The most militant opponents of Booker T. Washington's philosophy of accommodation, a heroic fighter against discrimination, and the person who had more to do with originating and carrying out a crusade against lynching than any other was Ida May Wells. At the early age of 19, as editor of the Memphis Free Press, she began her campaign against lynching. Threatened by white supremacists, if she continued her exposure of lynchings, she defied them but took care always to carry two pistols for protection. In 1892, she published an article revealing that the lynching of three successful Negro grocers was the work of their white competitors. Her press was destroyed and she would have been lynched had she not been in Philadelphia covering a convention. Miss Wells went to Chicago, where she joined the Chicago Conservatory, and then lectured throughout the northern part of the United States and in Europe on lynching. She was among the first to point out the falsity of the charge of rape as explaining lynching. In 1894, she published A Red Record, the first book to document the crime of lynching. A year later, she married Ferdinand Lee Barnett of Chicago, lawyer and later first Negro assistant state's attorney in Illinois. In 1898, she was the spokesman for a delegation of women and congressmen to President McKinley to protest the lynching of a Negro postmaster. An active member of the Niagara Movement, she was also one of the signers of the call for the National Negro Conference in 1909 and later a founder of the NAACP. Mrs. Wells Barnett delivered the following address at the 1909 conference. The lynching record of a quarter of a century merits the thoughtful study of the American people. It presents three salient facts. First, lynching is color line murder. Second, crimes against women is the excuse, not the cause. Third, It is a national crime and requires a national remedy. Proof that lynching follows the color line is to be found in the statistics which have been kept for the past 25 years. During the few years preceding this period and while frontier lynch law existed, 
the executions showed a majority of white victims. Later, however, as law courts and authorized judiciary extended into the far west, lynch law rapidly abated and its white victims became few and far between. Just as the lynch law regime came to a close in the West, a new mob movement started in the South. This was wholly political, its purpose being to suppress the colored vote by intimidation and murder. Thousands of assassins banded together under the name of Ku Klux Klans, Midnight Raiders, Knights of the Golden Circle, etc., etc., and spread a reign of terror by beating, shooting, and killing colored people by the thousands. In a few years, the purpose was accomplished, and the black vote was suppressed. But mob murder continued. From 1882, in which year 52 were lynched, down to the present, lynching has been along the color line. Mob murder increased yearly until in 1892 more than 200 victims were lynched and statistics show that 3,284 men, women, and children have been put to death in this quarter of a century. During the last 10 years from 1899 to 1908 inclusive, the number lynched was 959. Of this number, 102 were white, while the colored victims numbered 857. No other nation, civilized or savage, burns its criminals. Only under the stars and stripes is the human holocaust possible. 28 human beings burned at the stake one of them a woman and two of them children, is the awful indictment against American civilization, the gruesome tribute which the nation pays to the color line. Why is mob murder permitted by a Christian nation? What is the cause of this awful slaughter? The question is answered almost daily, always the same shameless falsehood that Negroes are lynched to protect womanhood. Standing before a Chattaqua assemblage, John Temple Graves, at once champion of lynching and apologist for lynchers, said, The mob stands today as the most potential bulwark between the woman of the South and such a carnival of take. The mob today stands as the most potential bulwark between the women of the South and such a carnival of crime as would infuriate the world and precipitate the annihilation of the Negro race. This is the never-varying answer of lynchers and their apologists. All know that this is untrue. The cowardly lyncher revels in murder, then seeks to shield himself from public execration by claiming devotion to women. But truth is mighty, and the lynching record discloses the hypocrisy of the lyncher as well as his crime. The Springfield, Illinois mob rioted for two days. The militia of the entire state was called out. Two men were lynched, hundreds of people driven from their homes, all because a white woman said a Negro assaulted her. A mad mob went to the jail, tried to lynch the victim of her charge, and not being able to find him, proceeded to pillage and burn the town and to lynch two innocent men. Later, after the police had found that the woman's charge was false, she published a retraction. The indictment was dismissed and the intended victim discharged. But the lynched victims were dead. Hundreds were homeless, and Illinois was disgraced. As a final and complete refutation of the charge that lynching is occasioned by crimes against women, a partial record of lynching is cited. 285 persons were lynched for causes as follows. Unknown cause, 92. No cause, 10. Race prejudice, 49. Miscegenation, 7. Informing, 12. Making threats, 11. Keeping saloon, 3. Practicing fraud, 5. Practicing voodooism, 2. Bad reputation, 8. Unpopularity, 3. Mistaken identity, 5. Using improper language three, violation of contract one, writing insulting letter two, eloping two, poisoning horse one, poisoning well two, by white caps nine, vigilantes fourteen, Indians one, moonshining one, refusing evidence two, political causes five, disputing one, disobeying quarantine regulations two, slapping a child one, turning state's evidence three, protecting a negro one, to prevent giving evidence one, knowledge of larceny one, writing letter to white woman one, asking white woman to marry one, Jilting girl, one. Having smallpox, one. Concealing criminal, two. Threatening political exposure, one. Self-defense, six. Cruelty, one. Insulting language to women, five. 
Quarreling with white man, two. Colonizing Negroes, one. Throwing stones, one. Quarreling, one. Gambling, one. Is there a remedy, or will the nation confess that it cannot protect its protectors at home as well as abroad? Various remedies have been suggested to abolish the lynching infamy, but year after year, the butchery of men, women, and children continues in spite of plea and protest. Education is suggested as a preventative, but it is as grave a crime to murder an ignorant man as it is a scholar. True. Few educated men have been lynched, but the hue and cry once started stops at no bounds, as was clearly shown by the lynchings in Atlanta and in Springfield, Illinois. Agitation, though helpful, will not alone stop the crime. Year after year, statistics are published, meetings are held, resolutions are adopted, and yet lynchings go on. Public sentiment does measurably decrease the sway of mob law, but the irresponsible, bloodthirsty criminals who swept through the streets of Springfield beating an inoffensive, law-abiding citizen to death in one part of the town, and in another torturing and shooting to death a man who for three score years had made a reputation for honesty, integrity, and sobriety, had raised a family, and had accumulated property, were not deterred from their heinous crimes by either education or agitation. The only certain remedy is an appeal to law. Lawbreakers must be made to know that human life is sacred and that every citizen of this country is first a citizen of the United States and secondly a citizen of the state in which he belongs. This nation must assert itself and defend its federal citizenship at home as well as abroad. The strong men of the government must reach across state lines whenever unbridled lawlessness defies state laws and must give to the individual citizen under the stars and stripes the same measure of protection which it gives to him when he travels in foreign lands. Federal protection of American citizenship is the remedy for lynching. Foreigners are rarely lynched in America. If by mistake one is lynched, the national government quickly pays the damages. The recent agitation in California against the Japanese compelled this nation to recognize that federal power must yet assert itself to protect the nation from the treason of sovereign states. Thousands of American citizens have been put to death, and no president has yet raised his hand in effective protest. But a simple insult to a native of Japan was quite sufficient to stir the government at Washington to prevent the threatened wrong. If the government has power to protect a foreigner from insult, certainly it has the power to save a citizen's life. The practical remedy has been more than once suggested in Congress. Senator Gallinger of New Hampshire, in a resolution introduced in Congress, called for an investigation with the view of ascertaining whether there is a remedy for lynching which Congress may apply. The Senate committee has under consideration a bill drawn by A.E. Pillsbury, formerly Attorney General of Massachusetts, providing for federal prosecution of lynchers in cases where the state fails to protect citizens or foreigners. Both of these resolutions indicate that the attention of the nation has been called to this phase of the lynching question. As a final word, it would be a beginning in the right direction if this conference could see its way clear to establish a bureau for the investigation and publication of the details of every lynching so that the public could know that an influential body of citizens has made it a duty to give the widest publicity to the facts in each case that it will make an effort to secure expressions of opinion all over the country against lynching for the sake of the country's fair name, and lastly, but by no means least, to try to influence the daily papers of this country to refuse to become accessories to mobs either before or after the fact. Several of the greatest riots and the most brutal burnt offerings of the mobs have been suggested and incited by the daily papers of the offending community. If the newspaper which suggests lynching in its accounts of an alleged crime could be held legally as well as morally responsible for reporting that threats of lynching were heard, or it is feared that if the guilty one is caught, he will be lynched, or there were cries of lynch him, and the only reason the threat was not carried out was because no leader appeared. A long step toward a remedy will have been taken. In a multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. Upon the grave question presented by the slaughter of innocent men, women, and children, 
there should be an honest, courageous conference of patriotic law-abiding citizens anxious to punish crime promptly, impartially, and by due process of law. Also to make life, liberty, and property secure against mob rule. Time was when lynching appeared to be sectional, but now it is national, a blight upon our nation, mocking our laws and disgracing our Christianity. With malice toward none, but with charity for all, let us undertake the work of making the law of the land effective and supreme upon every foot of American soil, a shield to the innocent and to the guilty Punishment, swift and sure. What did you think about that, Mr. Doctor? <laughs> oh, man, that's absolutely awesome. Um, yeah, her, her, her use of words is absolutely incredible, and the, the ability to, to tell a compelling story. Again, um, no disrespect against journalists of, of today, but um, her ability to, to paint a picture and to have a call of action is is, is literally unparalleled. So that, that uh, sure is. I loved how she uh, lists all the reasons why people were lynched, and smallpox just popped right out. Someone was actually right. lynched for having smallpox. Now that's just demonic, <laughs> you know, just really. Right. Right, a, a, a letter to a white woman, uh, self-defense six times with, I mean, come on. So. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I don't even know. The only thing I could think of when I hear stories like this is the gospel song, My Soul Looks Back and Wonder How We Got Over. And we got over because of people like Ida B. Wells that had definitely had the spirit in her. Um, you know, she made reference to Christianity several times and, for her to have hope in the midst of all of those negative things that that was going on in her life personally is a testament to her character and her faith. So, you know, she's definitely one of my heroes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, um, she she absolutely was a devout Christian, carried her Bible with her all the time. Uh-uh-uh. Well, you made reference to her using the pen as a sword. Um, she was very effective. And when I look at how she wanted to make the newspapers accountable, um, for mm-hmm. instance, when we, we have these chokeholds and, you know, this, these police brutality cases, most times the, the reports often, you know, villainize the uh, the victim. You know, oh, they, they'll bring out their record. You know, you know, you made reference to he was selling cigarettes. Um, they didn't find any cigarettes. The video shows that, you know, that when they went in his pocket, he didn't have any cigarettes. And he said... When they first approached him, Eric were talking about, he said, you know, stop harassing me. Apparently they have been, uh, you know, approaching him and confronting him on more than one occasion. So it seems like the news, the media is always accusing our victims of being criminals. And mm-hmm. um, and Ida said, let's sue them. You know, back in her day, they were inciting lynchings, and they somewhat do it today. It's a lot more subtle. But she said if they want to incite lynchings, then they need to be sued and held accountable for the the material that they promote. What do you have to say about that strategy? Oh, yeah. So um, <laughs> I completely agree uh, on several levels. One is um, to hold people accountable for their words. Again, what the media does, or, or <clears throat> which is a, um, any type of, strategy to provoke actions and this is what you'll hear uh for people and what are uh what you what you hear people do to incite war is to say that there's a threat against our security or a threat against our women and mm-hmm. that will incite people to, to action so you know whether it's true so for the perpetrator whether it's true or not doesn't matter it's if i want people to have action then i'll tell the proper lie to, that, that's going to make it happen so uh, i completely agree that if, if you're sued for that fabrication then i think you're a lot you're a lot less likely to do so and mm-hmm. that's um so on another note as far as uh 
being sued or, or or taking it to a different level. And that that's what Ida continued to do. Instead of making it a one-on-one thing, she was like, well, let me make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so mm-hmm. going back to the, the boycotts, that was an economic. She, she, she discovered early on it's an economic threat that's going to yield results. Don't think that your enemy is going to have empathy. Empathy is not going to work, but you, you hit him in, in the pocket, that's what's going to happen. So she was responsible for a couple of other um, lawsuits and her boycotts. One in 1884, she was uh, similar to Rosa Parks, um, except I was on a, a rail car instead of a bus and was forcibly removed. So uh, kind of, a, you know, America just went through several changes after slavery. So uh, during her, during that time, it was it, it had not been illegal for blacks to ride on the same car. Um, and right. then the, the law changed where um, you could buy a first-class ticket, but I guess if, if a white person wanted the seat, then you would have to move. So she had a first-class ticket, and the white person wanted the seat, and they said she needs to move, and she absolutely refused. And, again, you already mentioned she's a tiny woman. So the right. conductor came to tell her she needed to get off of the train. She said no. He put his hands under her to forcibly remove her, and she, she bit him. <laughs> hard. <laughs> and so he was like, okay, I need backup. So he went and got two other men. So it's three grown men with a woman who's literally five foot, probably 110 pounds, um, forcibly removed her. I mean, so she was literally fighting, had her uh, clothes torn and, and bruises. And when she got thrown off the train, the people cheered. And so she was so humiliated and angry Um she didn't just say, well, I'm going to get the conductor. She she actually sued the Tennessee, the Chesapeake Railroad, supposed to win $500, and that later got overturned by the state court, and instead of winning 500 she had to pay 200 in court costs. And that's, um, I can't say that's what sparked her interest or, or sparked her fire for justice, but that definitely contributed to it. And so, again, well, knowing that. She just that, hated you know, injustice. Right, right, right. She just really hated it. Right. She hated injustice, and it so happens that the the biggest injustice that America was experiencing was the lynching of the Negro. Um, But, again, from from those experiences, um, she discovered early on that it's it's not about to get justice, you've got to make an economic impact. Um, After the three men were lynched in Memphis, she initiated a boycott of the, uh, the Memphis trolley system. And so not only a boy, so in addition to a boycott of of the trolley system, she also traveled west because one of um, William Stewart's last words were, "Tell my people to go west. That there is no justice for them here." So she went and investigated, you know, uh, spots in Arkansas and Nebraska, and um, said that it's much safer for the Negro there than it was in Memphis. And so she wrote articles to support that, and was largely responsible for a mass. Exodus of black people out of Memphis um, towards 6,000. And the population of Memphis at that time was maybe uh, uh, 100,000, if that. Mm-hmm. And so to be responding, again, moving back then was, was no easy chore. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but to, to, to do that, and again, that's the economic impact that, that makes a difference. If people are moving out of your city, you know, you don't, you're losing. Um, Customers, you lose in revenue, you lose in workers, so that ma- that makes an impact. So those things contribute directly to the the reduction of lynching is when it's economic. Right, right, and it worked because um, in the documentary "Slavery by Another Name," they were so desperate for blacks' labor that they make, passed a law to say you couldn't be found anywhere near a train. So if they caught you trying to leave, they would arrest you and find a reason to re-enslave you. To perpetual slavery called um, convict leasing, but um, she mentioned in the speech this mob murder. You know, made reference to that several times, and that this was a way to suppress the vote. Oh, absolutely! So lynching, in my opinion, is our country's uh, first form of, of domestic terrorism. And again, mm-hmm. the, the intent of terrorism is to control the people through fear. 
And so lynching was, was absolutely the case there. Again, especially for, for racist white people, they wanted to have control overs. That's not a problem during slavery. During slavery, the, the, you legally had the right to control the black people, which is your property. The challenge after slavery is, okay, now we're, we're technically free. We can do what we want. So how do you control the people? You, you instill fear in them. And so um, the fear was uh, both for economic and voting. So, again, especially for cities where you had uh, populations of black people that were equal or greater than those of the white people. So uh, lynching was, was unfortunately a very effective way to try and keep black folks in line. And so mm-hmm. not allowing people to vote is the other effective way. And so how do you make sure somebody doesn't vote before laws pass? You instill fear that if I go to the polls, I may be killed. And so that that was um, a, an effective tactic that uh, Lynch or lynching was an effective tactic that that had the desired effect where people were scared to vote and wouldn't. Um, you know, fortunately, a lot did during those time frames, and that's when we did have black politicians. But after um, the, 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 the after we lost the right to vote, or before we lost the right to vote, that's what that's what was necessary to suppress the black vote. And I, I I really appreciate you talking about how she fought the streetcar um, segregation, and many people think that um, the law was always segregated, as far as uh, blacks riding on the streetcars in the back, and this only happened after Reconstruction, correct? Right, yeah, especially so, New um, Orleans. After- Right, mm-hmm. so pretty much, um, you know, 1960 or, or rather 1865 with the freeing of the, of, of the slaves, blacks uh, technically had equal rights. Um, mm-hmm. Again, that's why I say technically because a lot of times they were refused those rights. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until, um, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson with um, separate but equal where they could legally segregate. Mm-hmm. So um, now some states, as I mentioned, um, wrote their own laws. And, again, that's the, the law of the land versus the law of the state. So some states, as, as I mentioned in, uh, for Tennessee, um, would say segregation is, is okay. And, again, that's, those laws were challenged. It wasn't until Plessy versus Ferguson that it came to be a national law that segregation was okay, or segregation was, was the, the law of the land. Um, mm-hmm. But So going back to laws, um, one of the main things that Ida did um, was and, and pursued, which never happened, was to make lynching a federal crime. And you say, well, you know, what's the difference? You know, murder's murder. You know, how come it wasn't federal? Yeah, murder's murder, and you'll still um, go to jail, but that's for <laughs> that's for technically a, a murder. The, the challenge with lynching is you've got. So many people, so if it's not a federal crime, then you've got local people who do the investigation. And so oftentimes the local people who do the investigation, if, if they weren't the ones that, that, that had, were directly involved with, with the lynching, it's their friends. And so, you know, out of 4,700-plus 4, lynchings that occurred in the U.S., um, literally no one went to jail. So if you think about even with Emmett Till, which had national coverage, but it still was not, um, as far as the investigation goes, without it being a federal crime, they, the, it's not investigated at the federal level. And so, you know, when you allow it to be in the hands of that local entity, then, you know, the, the, the perpetrators are, are usually going to um, receive the favor of, of that local entity. So um, having those... Again, having, being able to have the laws in place where it's a federal crime would make a huge difference. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that never happens. And so happens that um, so three so as you know for, for a something to become a law, you know it's got to be a bill in Congress and then in the Senate. And three times um, from 1920s through the 50s, a bill was initiated in. Congress went over to the Senate and the Senate did not pass it. So in 2005, the U.S. Senate issued an apology uh, for not doing that because they dropped the ball. 
Um, and so it happens that I was um, I was invited to attend that service and was able to meet James Cameron, who's a namesake to, to the movie director, James Cameron, um, who's America's mm-hmm. oldest lynching victim, surviving victim, because technically a lynching year killed. Um, but he was literally, um, in 1930, taken... Uh, he, he was arrested along with two other people, and supposedly the two other people did commit a murder. He happened to know them, was with them earlier that day, but then um, went separate ways, and later on the other two people committed the murder. So the three men were, were jailed. The first two were literally taken from their jail cell, beaten, tortured, and hung. James Cameron was taken from his cell, literally beaten and tortured, was about to be hung, and, and one person in the crowd was able to say stop, and able to say stop loudly and emphatically enough where they actually stopped. She's like, I know he's innocent. you got to let him go. So they let him go, um, you know, cut him down, went back to his jail cell. He was not released, but he was allowed to live. So that was in 1930. Again, I met him in 2005. During that time, he did a, a, a number of great things, one of them being that he's the founder of the Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so saying that story to say, going back to mob mentality and innocent bystander versus what I call guilty bystander, is that lynchings often were, sometimes they were very well planned, (laughs) um, saying, hey, we're going to have a lynching on this day, and people would travel for it, and it it would be an an event. Um, Other times, you know, it would be a spur of the moment, you know, where there was a transgression, or suppose a transgression, people go and maybe start beating up a, on a person, and then it it turns into, oh, let's continue to do this, let's beat them, and then let's hang them. And so it wasn't necessarily starting off with the intent of lynching, but it, that's what it developed into. And what frustrates me is, you know, people can say that they're an innocent bystander. If you're at a lynching <laughs> and you don't say or do anything to prevent it, you're not an innocent bystander. You're guilty. You know, why does the home team have advantage in sports? Because of the crowd, that, that, that energy. And so right. the same thing is if, if you're part of the crowd, you're giving that energy to it, and you're condoning it. So you're, yeah. you're a guilty bystander. And, that, again, going back to my frustration with the, the uh, a lot of the police incidents, most recently the chokehold, is you got five guys there, and nobody's brave enough, courageous enough to step up and say, yo, this is too much. We Stop. Right, you, know, he can't you, you, breathe. you he said he couldn't breathe, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and no one said, okay. Right, right, this is over cigarette sales, so it's not even like, and not that Rodney King deserved to be beaten like that, but supposedly Rodney lunged at him initially, you know, led him on a high-speed chase, got adrenaline going. Um, so with, you can clearly see on camera there is nothing he did to deserve that level of, uh, for, 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 for them, that level of aggression against him. He was not aggressive right. towards them at all. I mean, there, there's no reason. So somebody should have stepped up and said, "Stop!" As, as right. a police, and you be like, "No, stop! This, 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 what we're doing right now is way too aggressive for the, the supposed crime." Again, whether he actually was selling cigarettes or not, no. But you don't do that for somebody who's supposedly selling cigarettes. And for all of this contact with the police, I think a lot of these arrests should be reduced down to just a ticket. They should have just issued him a ticket. There's really no mm-hmm. need to arrest anyone, in my opinion, for right. a, a misdemeanor. You know, I know I, I've heard that if you some some cities will issue you a ticket for smoking marijuana. You know, so mm-hmm. certain things. You know, if you want to do these stop and frisk and and these types of policing, I think uh, black people specifically should say. You know, we you need to reduce some of these these interactions to so just plain tickets. Stop all this arrest and this physical contact, and and that could limit it. That could be the beginning of limiting these types of incidents. If um, if it's not a, a, a felony, then there's no need to take out your handcuffs or to arrest anyone. It costs too much for the taxpayers, and it can escalate to what just happened with the case with Eric. Um, I know we're about to close. I have a few questions that I wrote down, but unfortunately I can't understand my handwriting. Unfortunately, I can relate. 
I'm trying to keep up with how fast you're speaking, but, um, you know, you are really educating us, and it seems like you're an advocate yourself. Are you involved with politics? <laughs> um, I get asked that frequently. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not directly involved with politics. Uh, okay. Um, though, I, I, so, I mean, I'm involved in that I, I vote and I contribute, but uh, I've never held political office. A lot of people okay. ask me to do <laughs> Well, I, I would definitely be a supporter if you ever wanted to run for anything. You know, let me know, and I would do whatever I could do in my little space and spirit to help you uh, oh. be elected to any office. I don't care if it's the uh, PTA. But I did find my question in regards to the lynching law. And you said something about 2005. You met a survivor of a yeah, lynching so J- J- Yeah, James, James Cameron. Um, he's since yeah. passed away. I think he passed away. I met him in 05. I want to say he passed away in 09. Mm-hmm. All right. So did a law ever get passed, a federal law? Was there ever an anti-lynching law? Pass. No, Ever? and there, there, there still is not directly an anti-lynching law. The law that they did pass is for hate crimes, which, uh, which they say is, uh, lynching would, would fall under that. Um, okay. But still, there, there technically, there, there is no uh, anti-lynching law. Is that the one that Obama uh, passed? The hate crime? Uh, no, the hate crime. Uh, after the Bird hate, was. I believe you remember the hate Bird crime was drug. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That? You go ahead. Remember Bird, um, the, the black guy that was drugged, and then there was a, a gay uh, teenager that was murdered, and Obama, right. as soon as he was elected, he passed a hate crime right. bill. Is that the same exactly. bill we're talking yeah, so, about? Yeah, so that, 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 that's the bill. So that, that, that circulated through uh, both Congress and the Senate for a couple of years, and, and uh, I believe it is Obama who actually put it into law. Wonderful. And Unfortunately, I know that there are still, well, there are anti-lynching, not anti, well, I guess we call anti-lynching laws. I've watched a program about Kevin Garnett, the basketball player, and when he was in high school, he got into a fight, and they charged him with lynching, and he was jailed for a short period of time, and then his his mom moved him out of that city. Um, so I was shocked to hear that there were laws on the books about lynching. Um, so some, I guess, as you said, you have state laws and you have federal right. laws. Correct. Right. So lynching is a crime, and it is a distinction, but it's not a federal crime. Right. Okay, wonderful. All right, so I think we covered a lot, and um, if you're not a politician, you are you an educator? Because this is one of the most informative interviews I've ever had in a long time. Yes, my notebook is full of questions, and I really learned a lot. Um, Could you tell us uh, more about, you know, I know you promoted your sister's book. Um, Are there any movies? Last night I went to see um, James Brown, the movie about James Brown, which his children had a lot to do with making that film. Your your, um, legacy Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. this would make a great movie. Have you ever thought about your family getting together and um, having – I don't really want a documentary. I want the real full-blast film, feature film about her. Um, have you thought about, you know, pitching this idea to anyone? Um, we have, and we've not done anything with it. There's there's a great documentary by Bill mm-hmm. Greaves, which he did in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, Ida B. Wells' um, Crusader for Justice, and it's uh, so that's a great documentary. It's about an hour long. Um, the family has thought about doing something, but so that's where that's where it stays right now. Uh, maybe in the next mm-hmm. couple of years we'll get together and, and pitch the idea and have a have a movie made because she what she did was uh, she did so many incredible things. It, it would be tough to do a just two hour movie on it. It's 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 yeah. really incredible the the, the 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 things that she did and the impact that she had is incredible. Right, because right. the twelve minute speech we listened to by um, read by uh, Ruby D was just like phenomenal. And I'm like, you know, I could just see it as a movie. Um, Ruby starring in it, you know, if she was alive. Uh, but you know, it was just incredible. So 
I really appreciate you being on the show, and you always, you know, answer our calls when we call call you to see if you could come on. You always say yes, and you don't know how much that means to me personally to have you on the line. And um, I appreciate everything that you're doing. And in closing, do you have any parting words? Um, well, yeah, I'd like to thank you for what you do, Leslie, is that, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, the positive and informative things are, don't get the, the attention that they deserve. And so I thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of my family. Thank you for what you do. Uh, it's an honor to be part of your show, and, and please let me know whatever else I can do to support you. All right. Well, you have a good night, and, you know, and we we will be in touch. All right. Yeah. Anytime you want to have me back on the program, I, I, I'd be honored to do it. You know I won't hesitate to call you. <laughs> All right. Sounds <laughs> All good. Right. Take care. Take care. Now right. stay blessed. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. 